Hi, and welcome back once again to Alderpod. This is Alderpod number 17, chapter 15 of the Aldersgate, Figments. Emery walked a few paces behind Ez and Cora as they were given a tour of the Nivings. He hadn't had a chance to see much of it himself, and tired though he was, there was no denying the grandeur of the place. Not only was the architecture the single most impressive he'd ever seen, and that was including Queensland and Bard's Hall, both considered marvels in their own right, but it seemed to continue in every direction he looked. Cavern upon cavern had been hollowed out and excavated, and from every angle spiraling staircases, buildings, and windows could be seen. The Sib moved about with ease, navigating the strange corkscrew streets with no hesitation whatsoever. As Hale walked, Hale named the buildings and districts one by one, from the high-towered square district, the center of law, to the steamy, smoky, and insufferably loud triangle district, which was home to the engineers' guild as well as the blacksmiths, alchemists, and aeronauts. Emery was far from fond of the clamor in the triangle district, and felt the dissonance of metal upon metal grating to his keen musician's ears. "'It is a bit of a racket,' so the Sib was saying, as they exited the Triangle District and moved toward Founders Way, a long and narrow passage that connected the Triangle District to Founders District, where the Sibs themselves lived in houses organized by clan. But most of us haven't grown up here. We're used to it. The houses closest to Triangle are from Clan Thuris, anyway, so it isn't as if they mind. Why's that? asked Cora, her face obscured mostly by the cloak she'd been given to wear on their tour. Emery noticed that Cora was not, as he initially thought, simply asking questions of Ez to be polite. No, she seemed endlessly curious as to the workings of the Nithings, and left no explanation unexplored. I hadn't heard you mention that clan by name before. Is that yours? It is, said Ez, pausing to let Cora pass in front of Hayon through a particularly narrow part of Founder's Way. It was barely wide enough for two people to pass shoulder to shoulder. And Clan Thuris tends to have a rather high number of engineering members, just as the other clans have their own proficiencies. What are those? Cora asked as they exited the tunnel and emerged into Founders District. The buildings here were not nearly as majestic as those they'd previously admired, but brought to mind beehives. There was something very organic about their arrangement. Many windows levels built atop one another with dark red awnings against the white stucco. Ez was smiling something that Emery had noticed quite a few times when Cora had asked a question. The Sip seemed extremely comfortable with the Alder daughter, in a way that, in another gendered individual, Emery would have taken as a reason for concern. "'Well,' continued Ez, taking a moment to rest and then lean against a railing on the side of one of the buildings. They had passed two saffron-robed guards as they entered Founder's Way, but they had not so much as blinked at them. We have seven clans here, clans that actually were established before there were even sibs. Cora raised her eyebrows and tilted her head slightly, so that her specks flashed momentarily in the green-gray light of the glow plants, or whatever their proper name was, Emery did not yet know. Before there were sibs? So our law says. We hold that the clans were abandoned by uplanders once they still started appearing, probably around two hundred years ago or so. Coincidentally, right around the time of the drainest upheaval, but that's another tale. I know the seven clans, Emery said, breaking into the conversation just as Ez was about to continue. It isn't exactly a sib secret. <laughs> I never said it was, Ez replied coolly. Cora turned toward Emery. 
you've heard of the clans too? Of course, Emery said, his stomach doing loop-de-loop when Cora's eyes met his. He cleared his throat. It's something that some of the more remote folk on the islands, especially those in the northern archipelago, adhere to. They reflect the seven gods, or at least the qualities of the seven gods. The names change depending on the language and dialect of the region, but overall the meaning is the same. I suspect Clan Thuriz is also representative of fire? Ez nodded. Yes, and a few other things, but you got the right idea. So that would make it the third clan, the third of the seven? Correct. Well, I've heard Thuriz called Tur in the north, or more properly Entur, the prefix a close approximation of the word clan. The first clan is Enfen, the mother goddess. She represents creation, fertility, that sort of thing, Emery said, nodding to Cora. She was looking at him strangely, one eyebrow slightly up over her spectacles and her tongue protruding just slightly between her lips. He couldn't tell if she was listening, rapt, or embarrassed. He hoped it was the former rather than the latter. Ah, so uh, Enfen would be our clan Fehu, as continued with a smile. Then follows clan Urs, and us, the warrior's clan. Exactly, as we said, clan Thuris, then comes clan Ansu, and Aina, the goddess of knowledge, and particularly loved of the bards. Then Ryda, said Ez, and Rhea, she's the goddess of the hunt, I believe, and also of horses. Then clan Kenos, said the Sib, counting on Hea's sixth finger. Emery was smiling now. Strange as it was, and distant as most of the gods and goddesses were to him, there was something reassuring in having this common connection to the Sibs. It made him feel significantly less distant from them, not to mention the sort of subject always filled him with excitement. And Kay, god of light, and of course music. And finally, Ez looked at Emery, expectantly, his dark eyes glinting merrily. In the Isles, the final is Enlaya, goddess of the sea, She's still worshipped, I assure you, even among not-so-remote people, said Emery. What's your seventh? Ez tucked Hes' hands into the sleeves of Hes' tunic. <laughs> A seventh clan is nothing. Nothing? asked Cora. W- what do you mean? I mean just that, the Sib continued, picking up Hes' pace again and moving deeper into the Foundry's district. They walked close together, as Ez explained. Some choose no clan at all, and so we, ha- we leave them to choose nothing, to be beloved of no one. Cora pulled her hood further down her face and asked, but, "'But surely, if they choose otherwise later on, they can be adopted into another clan?' "'Not in the least,' said Ez, somberly. "'We make the choice, and we keep it.' "'What happens to those in the seventh clan?' Ez turned around and said, "'They usually just go away.' Emery had a thousand questions to ask Ez about this seventh clan, and wondered how in the hells they had forgotten the goddess Lyre, certainly one of the most important of all the pantheon. He had, in fact, prayed to her not long ago on his airship crossing between Moor and Queensland. The wind had been harsh, and the water rough. The ship's captain had quite a time of keeping the ship straight. But they had now come to the middle of Founder's District, and to the foot of a massive statue. At first glance, Emery thought it was a representation of a naked woman, and then, slowly, the realization hit him that he was looking at an unclad sib. The piece was beautiful, cast bronze that must have required meticulous care to remain so smooth and untarnished, and at least as high as a standard two-story home on Moor. Nonetheless, the sweeping gesture, hands up above Hass's head, one leg out behind as if to leap into another pose, was undeniably beautiful. 
I figured a representation visually would be in order, Ez said, raising a hand to the statue. It gets a little sticky explaining without seeing, for people who aren't used to the sibs, so I thought I'd give you both a look. Cora wasn't saying anything, but she too was staring at the figure. It had no identifiable genitals. There was something between the legs, but it was smooth with a slight indentation, not the cleft of a woman or the protrusion of a man. It wasn't empty. It was just different. The hips were narrow and angular. The statue's long hair was cast down, hands back, arching delicately along the spine. There were no breasts, but the shoulders were round, the limbs long and... Perfect, Cora said, reaching out to touch the foot of the sculpture. I mean, she snapped back her hand and swallowed, looking from Emery to Ez very quickly. That's not, well, not to say that you're not. It's balance, Ez replied. I like to think of it as balance, neither male nor female, but a balance of both. Though he wanted to ask, he couldn't. It wouldn't be proper. Of course sibs couldn't couple with one another, or with anyone else for that matter. It seemed they were true specimens of androgyny, and as such would not be able to participate, let alone enjoy such an act. Unless... Emery shuddered at the thought of what some men might do were they able to capture one of the sibs. As if Hale were listening to his thoughts, Ez said, You might imagine that, before we found safety here, many of the sibs fell into rather abusive hands. Many of us look enough like women, or young boys, to be mistaken as such. Rape was very common among the Sib slaves in the last century, but considered to be no crime under the crown because rape, in a code of law, must be between a man and a woman. That's terrible, said Cora, drawing the up next to Emery. Her arm touched his, warmth against warmth, and he felt his nerves wind up and then abruptly detangle. It is what it is, said Ez, clapping his hands together. The truth is, we don't need coupling. Centuries without the need has helped us pioneer research into our pleasure capabilities. I don't think many of you uplanders could even imagine. Hale laughed and continued away from the statue and toward the next cavern in the city. But enough of the chatter. Cora, you have an appointment to keep, and we should keep on our schedule. Though there were plenty of beautiful buildings and districts to see in the Nithings, Emery felt drained and couldn't concentrate. For some reason unknown to him, it set him thinking about his own desires and his own oaths. Surely he'd not imagined himself imprisoned by sibs and forced underground within two months of his deployment to Queensland. And when he had vowed never to take a wife, he had meant it with his whole heart. Oh, he had known women, and never found enough of a connection, enough of a need to be with one. And now there was Cora. He wanted her. He thirsted for her. Every moment he spent with her, he only grew to need her more. It was a longing in him that he was by no means comfortable with. He didn't know what to do with the feeling, so he let it rattle around inside of him. Zender had told him that he had been in love once with the Soderin girl named Atari. He'd only seen her twice, but feared if he ever saw her again, he'd be powerless. He purposely avoided her at all costs for fear of what he'd do around her. Women... Zender said, had powers undreamed of by men. And up until Emery had met Cora Gray, he was unconvinced of Zender's claims. How different could women be, really? He'd met Malis and her high counselor. He'd had sisters of his own. They seemed to be made of flesh and blood, to eat and to shite. This he assumed of the queen, but could not be certain. 
and to be controlled by the same wants and needs as men. Certainly they were slower to anger, and occasionally beset with strange ailments, but powers. And this is the final stop on our tour of the Nithings, as was saying, as Emery stumbled on a loose cobblestone and nearly avoided tumbling right into Cora. He slipped her, clipped her shoulder, and she let out a surprised squeak. Sorry, he muttered, tired. I dare say you are, Cora replied. You certainly could use some sleep. You're probably right, Emery said. When was the last time you slept? Ez asked. Emery thought, and couldn't immediately come up with an answer, to which Ez responded, Enough said! You should get some sleep! Emery didn't want to leave Cora to Nesme alone, but he was too tired to conceive of a way to join her. He'd already had a personal visit with Nesme, and wasn't exactly chomping at the bit to do it again. The sib just had something odd about Hayon, an energy that Emery couldn't rightly explain. Well, I suppose I'll see you when you return, Cora, Emery said softly, bowing in the tradition of a bard, hand pressed to the forehead and down slightly on one knee. As he got up from a bow, he noticed that Cora was smiling, and for the moment he didn't even care if she was laughing at his strange display. <laughs> Thank you, Emery, Cora said, the smile still lingering on her lips. You're sure you're well enough to go visit Nesme, he tried. Yes, I'm fine, Cora said. I don't think I'm quite ready to visit Professor and Jem just yet. When I come back, we can have some dinner, I suppose if that's the right time of day for it, and talk a little more if you like. I haven't properly thanked you for helping me before. Emery stuttered, but he managed to say, Certainly, I'll look forward to it. He watched as Cora and Ez departed, and could hear them laughing as they did. Why in the gods was she so comfortable with Hayon? It made his insides squirm to think about the sib, and he'd only been an acquaintance for a few days. Didn't she remember Ez from the dungeon? Sure, he had been courteous, but scarcely kind, and now? Now they were chatting and laughing like old friends. Gloomy, Emery went back to the inn. The other girl, Jem, was sitting at one of the long black tables before a series of maps and various instruments to presumably measure distance. She appeared deep in thought, and didn't even look up when he entered, so the bard instead climbed the spiral stairs, did the sibs have everything in spirals, and went to his room. He hadn't actually spent much time in his room since he arrived, being only concerned with Cora at the time. Now he had a chance to look at it a little more fully, and it was quite comfortable. Someone had stoked the fire, put out a tray of nuts, and opened the window so the sounds of the street came up through the, and into the room. Not lingering too long, though, he wanted to be sure when he fell asleep it was with clean skin. The water hall was two doors down, and this is where he went. Like in the home he had grown up in, as well as in Dunley, the Sibs had managed to master the arts of plumbing, so hot water came gushing out when he pulled the chain above the wash basin immediately. It smelled slightly sulfurous as water went, but it was very hot and very clear. A pumice stone nearby, as well as a bar of gray-green soap, ensured that, when he emerged from the steamy room half a turn later, he truly had washed all the grime from himself. While his change of clothes were hung to dry, he took one of the sibs' robes from a peg in the water hall and wrapped it around himself, enjoying the comfortable material. It was unlike anything he'd worn before, certainly a fine quality, but rather mysterious to him. Soft, supple, but thick, like very thick silk he thought. The sips were strange, he realized, but they had a distinctly wonderful sense of comfort and luxury. Back at his room, he stretched sleepily and prepared to rest, 
The bedsheets were made of the same material as his robe, and he slipped pleasantly in, a warm bouquet of herbs meeting him as he did so. The last thought as he fell asleep was that he should have closed the window, for a sound from below might rouse him. But he needn't have worried. Sleep came like a cloud, enveloped. Emery woke up. At least, it should have been that simple. He had the sensation of waking, the realization that he had left the drowsy land of dreams, from which he could not remember anything, into the air and light of the waking world. Though he could recall none of his dreams, he had the distinct feeling that someone had called his name. It was a voice like his father's, low and rumbling. But no, something was not right. Emery went to move but found he could not. The dim light of the knitting still shone through his windows, and the room was much the same as he had left it when he fell asleep. Yet his body would not respond. His hands, his arms, his legs. It felt as if his entire body was immersed in a dark, warm blanket, so heavy it inhibited any movement. Panic rising, he darted his eyes around the room. At first he saw nothing out of the ordinary, the same table, the same chair. His clothes still hung by the door, now dry and ready to wear once again. But something was wrong. Yes, there it was. Hello, Emery. The voice. The same he had heard in his dream. Emery tried to speak, but could not move his lips. All he managed was a low moan. I'm quite happy to see you, continued the voice. I'd been hoping... We could have a little heart-to-heart -heart one of these days, but it is so difficult finding you. Emery stared as hard as he could, trying to focus on the voice, on the place at the end of the bed where he knew it was, whatever it was. This is a trick, he thought. No, no trick, replied the voice, as the space at the end of the bed shimmered slightly as something moved. It was like the air on a hot day at the horizon, wavering and odd, almost a mirage. As it moved, it came more clearly into view. A head, shoulders. The form was vaguely human, but with no substance. Sound is so much easier to translate than actual matter, the voice continued. You're in my head, thought the bard. Not in the least, said the figment, or phantom. Emery was not sure. I'm as real as you are, at least in my ethereal presence. When it comes to more complicated matters, I'm afraid I'm yet unable to move about the world as you. The pressure at the foot of the bed lessened, and Emery felt something move much like his cat back home on moor, up his legs and settle on his chest. He gasped for air, finding breathing suddenly quite difficult. It was as if someone had taken their hand and squeezed his lungs and heart, stilling them. It was both painful and strangely exhilarating. I thought you'd be happier to see me, considering everything I've done for you, said the voice, the timber changing now. It sounded like a woman speaking in low terms. What? Get off me, thought Emery, a sound like laughter. How do you think you found your way into the knittings, the voice asked. And how do you think Cora Gray ever got you out of that lonely little cell? I fell asleep. I fell asleep and felt... <laughs> you fell asleep, of course. And you called me to you, and I came, and I freed you, so you see you have no reason to be upset. Not upset, thought Emery. Can't breathe. 
Oh, said the voice, and the pain in his chest lessened, followed by a warm, pulsing feeling, like another heart on his skin. I forget you need air. It's just the first time I've been able to explore you so easily. It's quite delightful. What are you? Emery asked. Emery was dizzy by now, and he had given up trying to look at the creature on his chest for he was going cross-eyed. But his scalp was tingling with fear, and he was sweating so much he could feel his hair on his forehead, cool and wet. I once had a cage, said the voice, as it fluttered down Emery's stomach, lingering a moment around his groin, and then left the bed altogether. The next words were spoken by the window. But the lock was broken. You imagine after being in a cage so long I was confused. I wandered. I traveled. And then I saw you. Rather, I should say, I heard you. You were singing my song, calling me to you, begging me to come to you. I didn't call anyone, thought Emery. The voice laughed again. I assure you, you did. I know my song, and I always come when called. I didn't mean to. How? How did I call you? You heard my chords, Emery Roy. You heard my chords sung and played. It filled you with power, with knowledge, and you have run from it. You have chosen to lock it away. But such a gift is my song. Oh, such a gift as continues to give, to become more and more a part of you. In your sleep, you sing to me in your sleep, and I come to you. The first time was to save you from wolves, and I led you down the paths no man had tread before you. No. Then the second time, the second time, your mind sung my song, but was lost elsewhere. The girl. So I used the girl. I entered into her and helped her open the gates and free you. No. And now? Now? Oh, all matter of wonderful things are about to happen, Emery, said the voice, now hushed and right by his ears. Every time you call me to you, I grow stronger, stronger. And soon, you and I, we will join together with the others, and we will all dance. Others? No. The cage has been broken, the locks rent asunder. The storm is coming. What is going to happen now? I don't want to spoil the surprise. I so love surprises. Tell me. You will see. Perhaps not now. Perhaps later. But soon. Soon, my love. I am not your love. All manner of love. Love consumes all. And Emery began to scream. When he awoke, Cora was there. Professor was there, and Esme too. Faces and hands, busy and silent, moving around him in blurry circles. He couldn't make out their words, but he saw the worry in their faces, tried to talk back, but there was nothing. He was scraped clean, emptied out. His body slept and his mind was awake. 
Something hot and spicy was poured down his throat, and he gagged as it burned its way down to his stomach. It seemed to bring some of his senses back, hearing, at least. "'It'll take some time to work,' Esme's voice. "'I can only surmise it was a lack of sleep.' "'He was screaming so loudly.' Cora. Her voice was more nasally than before. Perhaps she was crying. The thought that Cora would cry for him filled Emery with a surprising amount of joy. I thought for sure someone had tried to attack him. She was accusing. Nonsense, Professor. The Sibs do not fight, will not fight. Well, they had no issue locking me in prison, snapped Cora. Sometimes non-violence is violence, even if the hand itself does not move. There is no one else on this floor, said Esme, her voice sharp. This was something else. Illness? asked Cora. Something along that road, replied the Sib. Please. Emery had spoken and everyone had gone silent. He was able to move his arms, and though his legs felt as if they were filled with sand, he was still able to move his toes. He suspected soon he'd have full movement again. Emery! Cora threw her arms around him, and he could smell her hair and her own underlying scent. Floral. Beautiful. You're back. Of course, Emery said, his voice cracking with the effort. He closed his eyes and lost himself in Cora's warm embrace, but too soon she broke free, leaving his skin cold. What happened? Oh, Emery, I've been so worried. I could hear you all, but couldn't see you much or speak. I'm sorry to have worried everyone, he said carefully. I'm not sure exactly what happened. You had one hells of a fever, said Professor. Off the rail, screaming wide-eyed like he was right possessed. Possessed, something like that. Emery looked at Cora and remembered the figment talking of having inhabited her, entering her, and he shivered. I I'm sorry, I, I, he said, and was sick all over the side of the bed. No one was there, but he spewed bile and some of the burning liquid he'd been made to drink earlier all over the dark wood floor. No matter, Nesme says. We'll clean it up. I'm sorry. No more apologies from you, said Professor. The little woman gave Emery a handkerchief. He grasped it, the material like paper in his hands, and wiped his mouth. Cora was watching him carefully, but she had no tears in her eyes. She was pale, though, her freckles standing out surprisingly dark on her pale cheeks. Everyone can stop staring, he said, self-conscious. I'll be fine. Do you remember anything? asked Nesme, leaning over the foot of the bed. Emery shuddered involuntarily. The memory was all too real of what he had seen. No, he lied, rubbing his hands over his face. How long was I asleep? Not long, said Cora. I had come in about an hour after you. Nesme had been detained, and I was to see Hayon a little later than we expected, so I dropped by to speak with Professor and Jem. We were downstairs discussing matters for our departure when... We heard the screaming. I had just fallen asleep, Emery thought. Nesme's face was drawn, lines around Hea's mouth, as Hea frowned at Emery, those deep, knowing eyes penetrating. I suppose we all have sleep tremors, the Sim said softly. All of us do. I suppose we do, said Emery. Sleep was no longer an option, not for a while anyway. Professor and Cora insisted that Emery remain in bed for the duration of the day. How they were measuring day and night he did not yet know, and certainly could decipher no difference between the light now and the light he'd seen before. And he had somewhat reluctantly agreed. 
the innkeeper, whose name Emery learned later was there, brought some broth made with vegetable base, as well as some more of the fizzy tea beverage the Sibs were so fond of drinking. While it looked far from appetizing, it was remarkably good to drink, and somehow lightened his spirits. Cora had brought him some books, music books, that she had found in the shelves of the inn itself, local songs of the territories. She had no idea why the Sibs found songs interesting. It was a volume her father had, in fact, back in Vell, and she had marked her favorites for Emery to read. He could not read them, for fear of the notes would be part of the cord, the cord that had brought the figment, or demon, to him. "'Nothing happened while I was asleep?' Emery asked the innkeeper. Bear, who had short black hair and wore purple sash around Hale's throat, replied, "'Not in the least. Business as usual, the knittings, of course. Nothing to report.' "'But if something happens, you'll tell me, won't you?' Emery asked. "'Of course,' Bear said. "'I promise.' Bratner had to shite something fierce. He excused himself from the round table discussion to the consternation of some of the other aldermen. He never could stomach those from the northern territories, so feck them if they had issue with him. The sky was purple, tinged with blue at the horizon where the moons were rising. Bratner hated this confounded island, but he resigned himself to staying there. They had held up Aldermoot three days just in anticipation of his arrival, so he might as well tolerate it. Dimly, he hoped the sheriff was holding out in Barnett. "'Hello,' said a voice. Bratner turned. He was a few steps from the lavatories, built off one of the sides of the old abbey. But he saw no one. "'Funny joke,' he muttered, coughing. "'Hilarious,' said the voice. A fist closed around his heart, and the last thing he felt was hot shite leaking down his legs, and then he fell into cold darkness.' Alderpod is written, produced, and performed by Natanya Barron. Remember, you can always learn more about the Aldersgate online at aldersgatecycle.com or aldersgatecycle.wordpress.com. Alderpod is a bi-weekly podcast when illness and things don't get in the way, so make sure your RSS feeds are updated and you get the most recent podcast straight to your computer. Thanks so much for listening.